We seem to live in the tension between self-improvement and self-acceptance. We are flawed human beings engaged in a kind of civil war waged between impulses and inhibitions, between desires and conscience. I guess the goal is to reach an acceptable peace between our inner demons and our better angels. Nature is complex, yours and mine included. In the previous episode, I began to explore the meaning of personality. I was probably overindulgent in looking at my own personality traits, and if that put you off, I apologize. I concluded that a personality is a description of the persistent psychological characteristics of a self-construct. Essentially, one's personality reveals the unique wiring of their internal incentive structures. The Big Five personality test reveals the built-in preferences of the subject. Do you prefer this or that? Do you feel good under such and such conditions? Do you seek out this particular thing or do you avoid it? Would you rather do this or do that? You often feel such and such a way. True or false? It's the opposite of a horoscope. The horoscope measures something in the world, the position of planets at the time of your birth, and attempts to describe your personality. This is entirely arbitrary and couldn't possibly work. The personality test takes a measure of your preferences and then gives you back what you said in the form of a report. In the case of the Big Five test, you get back a percentage which compares how you answered questions to how a large population of other people answered them. One potential pitfall to this approach is that it depends upon having personal insight. But chances are you know your preferences better than the relative locations of planets do. Secondly, and this is true of personality in general, a test like this tells us nothing about intelligence or capability. So just because you like things orderly, for example, doesn't mean you are good at keeping them orderly. In this episode, I want to take a look at psychological conditions known as personality disorders. Following up on the claim that personality is a matter of affective incentives, what would a disorder of these incentives look like? The DSM-5 recognizes 10 different personality disorders. These come in three different clusters, known as Cluster A, Odd, Eccentric, Cluster B, Dramatic, Emotional, and Cluster C, Anxious, Fearful. These personality disorders are distinct from affective disorders like major depression, anxiety and panic disorders, anorexia, and bipolar. I don't have the expertise right off the top to tell you why that is so, but we can take a look at it. Cluster A, odd eccentric, consists of paranoid personality disorder, schizoid personality disorder, and schizotypal personality disorder. The first, paranoid personality disorder, consists of severe mistrust of other people and an expectation of malevolent behavior from others. This comes with a powerful tendency to be unreasonably suspicious and to bear grudges. Schizoid personality disorder is a pattern of detached relationships and low expressiveness toward others. These individuals do not seek and do not like close relationships, so they are solitary. They are emotionally detached, derive little pleasure from anything in life, and are indifferent to criticism and praise. A related disorder is schizotypal personality disorder, in which the individual has difficulty establishing close relationships, but this is due to distorted perceptions and eccentric beliefs. They have decreased in inappropriate emotions and a high level of social anxiety driven by paranoia. My immediate observation of cluster A personality disorders is that a high level of neuroticism is coupled to an incapacity to make friends and form close relationships, even with family members. Broadly speaking, they are indifferent to other people or pathologically suspicious of them. Okay. Cluster B, 
dramatic emotional, includes antisocial personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and borderline personality disorder. Antisocial personality disorder involves a pattern of violating the rights of other people. These individuals commit illegal acts, frequently lie, act impulsively, take advantage of others, and lack remorse. Histrionic personality disorder consists in a pattern of attention-seeking behavior. They feel the need to be the center of attention. They use a vague style of speech and behave in a dramatic or theatrical style. They're often sexually provocative, and they overestimate the intimacy of relationships. People with narcissistic personality disorder have a need to be admired, and they have low empathy for others. They fantasize about greatness and have a high sense of entitlement and self-importance. Borderline personality disorder consists of poorly regulated emotions, meaning rapid shifts in emotion. They're overreactive, so they don't take criticism well. They often have severe anxiety and they have intense anger. They're impulsive, including episodes of self-harm. They may repeatedly threaten suicide or make suicidal gestures. And they have split thinking, so things are often black and white, absolute love or absolute hate. They often have unrealistic thoughts and beliefs and a chronic feeling of emptiness. Finally, people with borderline have a pattern of intense, unstable relationships. I observed that cluster B personality disorders may involve exceedingly low trait compassion coupled with high assertiveness. In the case of borderline, it looks like a high level of volatility as well. That's the part of neuroticism that involves getting very upset at what is happening in the moment. It strikes me that low conscientiousness makes this much more dangerous, as in the case of antisocial personality disorder. All right, let's take a look at cluster C, anxious, fearful. Cluster C includes avoidant personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. In some sense, these represent the opposite problem as that of cluster B. Avoidant personality disorder is characterized by a feeling of inadequacy and hypersensitivity to criticism. These individuals avoid taking risks, especially social risks, for fear of embarrassment. Dependent personality disorder involves a pattern of clinging, needy behaviors, a need for constant reassurance. The individual is afraid to make decisions and to take responsibility for their lives. They depend on a close relationship to gain support and care, and they will rapidly seek a new relationship when one ends. Finally, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder involves a preoccupation with orderliness and control. The individual is perfectionistic to a fault and morally rigid. It appears to me that cluster C personalities tend to be high in conscientiousness to the point of stifling doubt and self-judgment. All right, so the bottom line is that there are 10 recognized personality disorders and they fall into three broad clusters. I ran through them very quickly. You and I might recognize ourselves in some of the descriptions I just gave. That by no means indicates that we have personality disorders. For example, I relate most closely to cluster C, the anxious and fearful group, but I would not come close to meeting the DSM criteria for a disorder. Maybe this is because certain personality traits tend to counteract others and buffer their effect. Or maybe personality disorders occur in the presence of extremely high or extremely low personality trait scores. That would make sense. Take conscientiousness, for example. Having high trait conscientiousness is a good predictor of lifetime success. It is composed of industriousness and orderliness. Having a score of 80% or 90% would mean that you are more conscientious than 80 to 90% of people. This should amount to a much higher than average sense of duty and work ethic. 
that would be a good thing. But it probably means you can't relax, you work too much, and other aspects of well-being might suffer. You might be a bit high-strung with a tendency for anxiety. But what is it like when you get to the 99%? Is this too high for your own good? You might assume that it wouldn't be, but consider what we are really talking about with these personality traits. We're talking about built-in incentive structures within the affective regions of the brain. It isn't exactly that high conscientiousness is a tendency to be industrious and well put together. That is the behavioral outcome. The action occurs in places like the hypothalamus. What's actually occurring is more like this. The higher your trait conscientiousness, the more uncomfortable you feel when you are not accomplishing goals, when your environment is disorderly, and when you are in a moral gray area. You are under the assault of feelings of guilt and self-judgment. Can you live up to that? It might depend on how much trait neuroticism you have. How volatile are you, for example? Maybe you can never live up to your own expectations. Maybe you feel like a failure, always chasing success at a full gallop and coming up short. Being responsible is good, right? But what about setting a half dozen alarm clocks every evening and meticulously checking them again and again? Uh-oh, the blanket touched the floor. Now I have to wash and rewash all the linens in the house. You can see how this could go awry, how excessive conscientiousness could drive you to madness. Well, what about extremely low conscientiousness? Well, here you will find psychopathy. You take no responsibility for anything or anyone. You have no sense of moral responsibility. The affective brain just doesn't punish you for these kinds of transgressions. You don't even know what guilt or shame would feel like. According to Robert Friedel, borderline personality disorder might affect something like 6% of the population. That means you probably know someone afflicted by it. If you do, you probably have been faced with what appear to be extremely toxic patterns of behavior, especially when the individual with borderline disorder is under stress. Outbursts of rage, unreasonable reactiveness to perceived criticism, drug addiction, self-harm, and impulsive destructive behaviors are all examples. In his book, Borderline Personality Disorder Demystified, Friedel writes, quote, Abnormal activity in the amygdala system, emotional dysregulation, along with decreased activity in the orbital medial and anterior cingulate systems, impulsivity, and the dorsolateral prefrontal system, impaired memory, learning, and reasoning, occurs in varying degrees in people with borderline disorder. There is no reason to believe that everyone with borderline disorder suffers from the same degree of impairment in each of these neural systems. In fact, it's clear that people with the disorder have different levels of impairment in each of the behavioral domains of the disorder controlled by these neural pathways. Some people have more symptoms of emotional dysregulation, while others may have more difficulty in controlling their impulsive behavior. Still others may have the most difficulty in their ability to reason and think clearly and rationally, especially under stress. Indeed, at times of severe stress, they may briefly lose contact with reality to the point where they become very suspicious of people or feel as if they are having out-of-body experiences or other unusual thoughts and sensations." Unquote. People with borderline disorder tend to have tumultuous relationships. Their apparent flaws can be misunderstood as moral failings and judged harshly. It's difficult to avoid being judgmental, but of course, their misbehaviors ultimately stem from dysfunctions in the brain, and these can be addressed with some success using pharmacology and psychotherapy. In a sense, we are all domesticated by subcortical structures. They condition us to operate according to certain rules. Do they add up to making a good dog or a bad one? Or a very bad one? Consider the case of sadistic criminal behavior. Here's an article from Scientific American which talks about the case of Charles Whitman. The article is called, 
How Responsible Are Killers with Brain Damage by Micah Johnson, 2018. It says, quote, Charles Whitman lived a fairly unremarkable life until August 1, 1966, when he murdered 16 people, including his wife and mother. What transformed this 25-year-old Eagle Scout and Marine into one of modern America's first and deadliest school shooters? His autopsy suggests one troubling explanation. Charles Whitman had a brain tumor pressing on his amygdala, a region of the brain crucial for emotion and behavioral control. Can murder really be a symptom of brain disease? And if our brains can be hijacked so easily, do we really have free will? Neuroscientists are shedding new light on these questions by uncovering how brain lesions can lead to criminal behavior. A recent study contains the first systematic review of 17 known cases where criminal behavior was preceded by the onset of a brain lesion. Is there one brain, rage, brain region consistently involved in cases of criminal behavior? No. The researchers found that the lesions were widely distributed throughout different brain regions. However, all the lesions were part of the same functional network located on different parts of a single circuit that normally allows neurons throughout the brain to cooperate with each other on specific cognitive tasks. In an era of increasing excitement about mapping the brain's connectome, this finding fits with our growing understanding of complex brain functions as residing not in discrete brain regions, but in densely connected networks of neurons spread throughout different parts of the brain. Interestingly, the criminality-associated network identified by the researchers is closely related to networks previously linked with moral decision-making. The network is most closely associated with two specific components of moral psychology, theory of mind and value-based decision-making. Theory of mind refers to the capacity to understand other people's points of view, beliefs, and emotions. This helps you appreciate, for, for instance, how your actions would make another person scared or hurt. Value-based decision-making refers to the ability to judge the value of specific actions or their consequences. This helps you see not only what the outcome of your actions will be, but whether those actions and outcomes are good or bad. The letters written by Charles Whitman on the eve of his killing spree provide a chilling window into a mind losing the ability to understand good, bad, and other people. It was after much thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy. I love her dearly, and she has been as fine a wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. This research raises troubling questions about Charles Whitman and the other subjects in the study, and for all of us. If their actions were caused by brain damage and a disrupted neural network, were they acting under their own free will? Should they be held morally responsible for their actions and found guilty in a court of law? Should we see them as patients or perpetrators, or both? Some scientists have followed cases like Charles Whitman's down the slippery slope, reaching the most extreme conclusion that by uncovering the biological causes of behavior, neuroscience shows that free will as we ordinarily understand it is an illusion. But these arguments depend on a faulty conception of free will. Free will should not be understood as a mysterious ability to cause actions separate from our brain activity. In fact, just the opposite might be true, that free will requires certain connections between our brains and, other, and our actions. After all, our brains are the biological basis of our identity, housing our memories, our values, our imagination, our ability to reason. In other words, all the capacities necessary to make choices that are uniquely our own and to carry out actions according to our will. Unquote. The argument tendered by Micah Johnson doesn't address the problem deeply enough, in my opinion. The example of Charles Whitman's crime just shows that our drives and impulses are driven by the activities of structures in the brain. If you or I had a similar tumor, 
compressing the amygdala, we might find it appealing to stab our wives to death with a broken broom handle. Our reason would not enter into it. In fact, for our own cognitive benefit, we might confabulate a sensible motive for doing the thing, which justifies it to ourselves quite handsomely. But if personality psychology and the physiology which underlies it has anything to teach us, it is that the reasons we don't act like psychopaths are just as inherited. We take credit for our good deeds and accomplishments while excusing our transgressions with phrases like, I don't know what came over me, or I just wasn't myself. I'm not arguing that our system of justice should reflect this observation. On ethical grounds, I really don't know what we should do with this information. The author of this article said that free will requires connections in the brain. This could be right. Perhaps it isn't even free will per se, but the capacity to take reasonable action and suppress our darker impulses. At least with the brain intact and not under the influence of the wrong drugs or environmental triggers. I, for example, am not one to get very angry. It just isn't my nature to see red and go crazy. Some people have had such occasions, and I'm glad to not be one of them. At best, though, I am a kind of nurturer which tends to this nature. The nature itself cannot be mine. Rather, I tend to it like a gardener, pulling up the weeds and putting up hedgerows to keep things in order. It is a walled garden, protectively enclosed within the confines of my skull. But mankind has known for a long time indeed that in the midst of this sanctuary, in the hidden recesses of the garden, there are serpents. Mm -hmm.